You know, the statistics are pretty sobering. According to stats over the last 10 years, the National Institute of Mental Health notes that 54% of women, 46% of men, experience some level of anxiety disorder. Another report found that more than half of university students had to seek help for anxiety issues. As Dr. Julie McCarthy of University of Toronto explains, anxiety has become the number one mental health issue in North America, which led one pundit to recently observe, anyone who doesn't have high blood pressure these days simply isn't paying attention. <laughs> But those who do battle worry and anxiety, they often feel out of control of their health and life, often struggle with low self-esteem, often are workaholics, more often are sick, and often feel at a distance from God. So with this awareness, today we're, we're starting a new teaching series together in which we're considering what guidance Scripture gives us in handling and responding to the anxiety, fear, worry, and stress that is such a prominent element of our lives today. Because we walk in a faith, we worship a God who promises again and again that we don't need to live under the grip of anxiety and stress, but that we can live with courage, with hope and refreshment in Christ. So among other elements, we're going to be looking in the weeks ahead at how we respond to the fear of failure that often is kind of in the background of our minds as we walk through life. We'll consider what steps we can take physically, even to lessen the levels of stress and worry in our lives. And we're going to identify some specific strategies we can use in responding to anxiety and worry that we face. But today, I want to start by laying a foundation that can profoundly impact whether worry and anxiety rises or diminishes in our lives. And I don't want to presume that we have this foundation rightly in place. And it actually comes from the teaching and guidance of Jesus. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to turn there with me, we'll be looking near the end of Matthew 11. If you have your Bible or Bible app, I encourage you to bring one as we come together. And, and we want you to know, we're going to work our way to the central teaching we're going to look at, all right? So I want to encourage you, we're going to get there all, all along this way, but you're going to need to work with me a bit on this. And then really, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Jesus' words. You know, in, in most realms of life today, uh, we're given the option of kind of a, a breadth of alternatives. We know we speak of alternative medicine, alternative lifestyles, alternative music, alternative clothing. So a question of our day is naturally, okay, so what are the alternatives in spiritual and religious matters? Now, you and I, I think we're kind of appropriately hesitant to make absolute statements in many areas of our life, right? I mean, like, for example, in dialogues with our spouse. For example, if we are wise, we avoid using words like, you always, or you never, 
or everyone or no one, it's just kind of wise to avoid statements, absolute statements in that context. And really, even in discussions around religious matters, we rightly want to communicate with humility and grace. But let's look today then, not at what religious people say about Jesus. Let's not just look at what I say about Jesus. I want us to look at what Jesus says about himself in this. And the setting for what we're going to read is that Jesus actually just rebuked those who have rejected him. In a small little region, it was just the towns right around his hometown. It was the towns of Chorazon and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Jesus had just challenged, rebuked them because they rejected him. And then we received this teaching. This is in Matthew 11. That's what we're going to look at. And as we hear it, remember, friends, this is a word of God. In verse 27, this is what we read. Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, we know this about Jesus. We know Jesus wasn't one for making rash statements. There's really kind of a calmness, a, a logic to how Jesus taught, to, to what he said. So kind of regardless of what you might initially think of Jesus' statements here, I, I just want to make sure we catch just kind of the reasoned logic of what Jesus is claiming here. So let's do this. Let's just kind of break this one verse down into three statements. I just want to make sure we catch it. First statement, notice this. Again, we're in verse 27. Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Okay, so let's paraphrase this bit. Let, let's read this together. This is what it says. Read it with me. The Father has given all things to Jesus. Okay, now, now remember, as we hear that, remember, following his resurrection, Jesus said something similar to his disciples. Right at the end of Matthew, this is in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus said this. Jesus said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to whom? To me, Jesus says. It's kind of re-expression of what he says back here in verse 27. That's the first statement. Okay, the second statement, verse 27, Jesus said, no one knows the Son except the Father. All right, let's paraphrase and read this together. Read it with me. Only God the Father fully knows Jesus. Okay, now in your mind you might be thinking, if you reflect on that, I mean, Jesus is saying, ultimately, he is a mystery to everyone but the Father. And you might think, wait a second. Okay, I know in the gospel stories, the demons know and acknowledge Jesus, right? Yes, they do. They, they recognize who he was. But understand this, in the biblical writings, New Testament writings, that word know means far more than just kind of an intellectual recognition. In fact, that word know in the Greek, here it is, epignosko. Want to say it with me? Epignosko. And, and, and what that word means, as Bill noted a couple of weeks ago for us, that refers to really the most intimate, fullest relational knowledge. The intimacy of a loving husband and wife for one another. So Jesus is saying here, the relationship between him and God the Father, it really is distinct from all other beings. And that reality is actually reflected 
in Jesus' third statement. Look at verse 27. Jesus thirdly said this. No one knows a father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. All right, let's, let's read this together. Put it this way, and let's read this with me. Only Jesus reveals God the Father to us. Read it again. Only Jesus reveals God the Father to us. Okay, so let's take those together. And let's just kind of review the logic of Jesus' claim here. All right? Jesus is saying, okay, if, if Jesus is a mystery to all but the Father, and if God the Father is a mystery to all but Jesus, then how can anyone know either the Father or the Son? Here's Jesus' claim. It is only through the revelation that I bring, Jesus says. That is the only way. And on this, understand, Jesus is not modest on this. He is completely authoritative. In fact, listen to how he put it as it's recorded in John 14, verse 6. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. You have seen him because, Jesus is saying, you've seen, you know me. Okay, so according to Jesus, how can we know God the Father? Listen, only through Jesus. And if you think, okay, but can't other religions and faiths give spiritual insight to us? Yes, they absolutely can. But Jesus says, Jesus says, they cannot ultimately reveal God to us. That only comes, Jesus says, through him, through Jesus Christ. So what do we do with Jesus' teaching here? Well, I'd, I'd like to suggest in a couple of responses we could have. The first is kind of a theological response to Jesus' teaching. And the second I want to touch on is, is a more personal one. Okay, so first, here's a theological response to Jesus' teaching. Because I realize that when we read Jesus' words here in verse 27, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I know that phrase from Jesus, that can lead us to get caught up in the question, okay, wait a second. So do I then bear any responsibility or role in turning to God in faith? If I can only know God if Jesus chooses to reveal him to me. I mean, which is primary? I mean, am I chosen by God? Am I kind of predestined to believe? Or do I choose to believe God? Is it a step of faith, of, of will that I make? And I imagine you might know, the history of the church is just littered with attempts to deny or subordinate one of those themes over the other. But I think if we're true to Scripture, we really must affirm kind of both realities here. Because Jesus seemed quite comfortable affirming and communicating both realities. I mean, just look at this. Look right on the heels of Jesus saying in verse 27, he says those words, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, right on the heels of that, Jesus says in what is really the central verse of this passage to which we now come, verse 28, Jesus said, come to me whom? All. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
To put it another way, the door is wide open to, Jesus says, all. Okay, so for one, I want you to know, we affirm that for one, it is Jesus who opens our eyes to bring a revelation of God the Father to us. And we also affirm the door is wide open to all. Okay, that, that's one response to Jesus' teaching in verse 27 here. But, but then a second, like kind of a more personal response. Okay, what do we do with Jesus' claims and teaching in these verses here? Well, let's go a bit deeper in this, all right? In, in verse 28, Jesus specifically invites all who labor and are heavy laden to come to him. And so we ask, okay, so who is Jesus referring to when he speaks of those who labor and are heavy laden? Now, some might suggest, some have suggested that he meant the kind of socially disenfranchised, those ostracized in society, those, those who are socially kind of impoverished. Or we ask, is Jesus referring to those burdened by the cares, the anxieties, the stresses, the heaviness of this world? And I think it likely Jesus would have included both those groups in what he was speaking about. But Jesus seemed to be intending here something in addition to those. Because those phrases, the one in verse 28, all who labor and are heavy laden, and then also in verse 29 where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, those phrases were, understand, in that day, especially linked to the image of just a burdensome, and heavy yoke of religious performance. Because we read of it in the Gospels, just many of the Jewish religious leaders, the, the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees, they had turned the guidance of the Old Testament in just to kind of this overwhelming weight of just extravagant legal and ethical demands. And so literally, individuals who would spend hours in a day just trying to fulfill the burdensome Levitical and religious requirements of, of the law. And understand, this was a tendency that even infiltrated the early church. In fact, in Acts 15, there's just an intriguing encounter there in Acts 15 at the Great Jerusalem Council. And, and that's when the Jewish Christians were trying to force the Gentile new believers to follow the burdensome Levitical codes. And if you remember, the Apostle Peter stands up there and he says this in Acts 15.10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's saying, hey, understand, you are returning us to a legalism from which Jesus freed us. Okay, so take that, go back to Matthew 11, and what then does Jesus offer to us? What is he offering to us? Look at verse 29. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Again, that means Jesus is not calling us to abandon every kind of responsibility or obedience, but he is offering a relationship with himself by which we are empowered through his Holy Spirit within us to obey him, to follow him with joy. It means there is therefore just kind of a lightness to the yoke of Jesus because we serve him by his power. 
So after making these kind of dramatic claims of verse 27 about himself as the only source of revelation, Jesus graciously gives this invitation. Look at verse 29. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be my disciple, be my apprentice. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Read it with me. Rest for your souls. And I want to make sure you notice two things here. First, that word find, when he says you will find this. That word find in the Greek is a Greek word hierisko. Now, it doesn't just mean you will discover. It doesn't just mean you will intellectually kind of recognize. But what that word in the Greek originally means is you will begin to experience something. To experience something. To experience what? Well, verse 29, you will experience what? Rest. And, and by that, not meaning sleep. More meaning regeneration, refreshment. And as we've noted before, that does not mean, we know it in our lives, that does not mean we're spared from challenges in our life. But rather it means we can be empowered by Christ to be victorious in them and even as we go through them. In fact, if you want to picture that, listen to the Apostle Paul. He, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Listen to him. We are afflicted in every way, Paul says, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. Ever felt perplexed in life? But we're not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, so that the life of Jesus, listen to this, might be made manifest in our bodies. Made manifest in our bodies. So that we might experience refreshment through the presence of Jesus within us. Okay, so back to an earlier question. Okay, so can other religions and faith give some spiritual insight to us? Yes, they can. But according to Jesus, it is in perfect knowledge. They cannot ultimately reveal God to us. And so on this, I just want to be crystal clear, friends. Understand, even as we move in this series, God cannot be known in full relationship through any religion, including a religion of Christianity. What? Well, understand this. I say that because, understand, Christianity has often been turned into just a religion. It, its focus can tragically become just kind of religious observances, just performance. So let's be clear as we move into this teaching, authentic Christianity is not a religion. It is a revelation that comes through Jesus. It's this living relationship we walk in. You know, periodically in walking with or counseling somebody who's, who's not part of our church family, uh, because they're aware of my vocation, often uh, they'll say something like, well, I, you know, I really want to, or I really should get back to attending church because I think they believe that's what my focus and passion is. And really, I deeply want them to know. I often will say to them, I don't want you to get back to attending church at least not for the reason you're likely thinking of. No, I want you 
to know and experience Christ. Now, the thing is, as we know and follow Jesus, we'll hopefully be drawn to study his word together, to gather like this, to join with other followers of him, to to be challenged, support, to be encouraged by one another, to serve one another, and understand one of the central ways we can experience Christ in this world is through the body of Christ. But let's also be clear, church attendance is not what we offer or proclaim here. We offer and proclaim him. It is him alone. And I'll I'll say to you, if you are here searching for meaning kind of through religion, even Christian religion, you won't find it here. If you want to feel better in your life by kind of fulfilling religious observances in some way, I'll just let you know right now, you likely will not enjoy it here. And you'll likely be increasingly aggravated with me. (laughs) Because we don't offer religion. I mean, we believe deeply that religion, as we define religion today, cannot satisfy. I mean, it it will tie you up with burdens that, that might make you feel kind of like you're a better, more spiritual person than most. But I'll tell you, you will eventually hunger for more. And that's why what we offer, our only hope is him. It is Christ. And that's why we celebrate in the words he expressed in verse 28. Make certain you hear, Jesus said, he says to you today, come to me. All you who labor are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And you will find rest. You will experience rest for your souls. You know, David put it this way. Before he even knew of Christ, listen to what he expressed. This is in Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Blessed, happy is man, the woman, who makes the Lord his trust. And I would guess this. I'm pretty sure that some of you here today, you feel like you are stuck in a miry bog of anxieties, of worries, burdens, stresses. I mean, are are you just longing for some kind of rest for your soul? I mean, some source of authentic hope, refreshment, strength beyond yourself. Well, I want to give you a chance to respond to Jesus' offer today. You know, there's a story that's, it's actually been around for decades. It, it, It really probably belongs among the urban myth category because it's not really documented very well. But it's a it's story about the great Polish concert pianist, Jan Paderewski. And the way the story goes, Paderewski was doing a concert at a beautiful, great concert hall in the early 1900s. And there was a mom who brought her little nine-year-old boy to the concert. And she was kind of hoping that by seeing this great pianist, he'd be inspired in his own piano lessons. And the boy sat down and thought the piano looked pretty cool on the stage. So just before the concert began, while the mom wasn't paying attention, the kid actually slipped out of his seat, walked up on stage, and sat down on the bench of this 
gorgeous Steinway. Just try to picture it. And he started to play chopsticks. <laughs> and he was not playing it very well. And this just really annoyed everybody there who had come for the concert. I mean, because for one, chopsticks is just a really annoying song. <laughs> and also, they were all waiting for Paderewski to come out and play. And so everybody's kind of wondering, where's the kid's parents? I mean, where's security in this? And everybody's also wondering, what's Paderewski going to do when he hears somebody messing up his concert by playing chopsticks? So finally, a man kind of walked briskly off to the side stage towards the piano, and everybody's surprised because it's Paderewski. And people are thinking, uh-oh, he's got to be ticked. So Paderewski goes up to the piano, but instead of grabbing the kid, he reaches down beside him, and he starts to improvise on chopsticks, playing this kind of running obligato. And so now they're playing this duet together. And the way the story goes, the whole time they were playing together, Paderewski was whispering in the boy's ear, you're dead meat, kid. <laughs> no, actually, that's not the story. <laughs> he was actually whispering, just keep going, don't quit. Man, you're doing great. I'm here with you. And we're creating something they'll always remember. You know, by the time the night was over, Paderewski had played just all these magnificent pieces, you know, Mozart, Chopin, Brahms. But the highlight, the moment nobody would forget, was the duet, playing chopsticks with a nine-year-old kid, where the maestro, the, the master, takes this mess and turns it into something unforgettable, a masterpiece. Again, this is probably an urban myth, not well-documented. In, in fact, really, mainly, we just have this promotional poster with Paderewski and a boy that was produced around that time. But what's interesting is, it's one of those stories that really just won't go away. And you kind of wonder, why does this story just keep living on so? I mean, you can go along, check, go online, check it. It's all over the place. And you, and you wonder, what does this story speak to in the human heart? And I think, in part, it's because we're all kind of playing chopsticks in life. I mean, we have this dream of what life might be, a, a picture of what could be created. But we're all kind of messing things up along the way. And, and we find ourselves in this place where life's, it's just not turned out the way we anticipated. Ever felt that? That, that there are challenges, these worries, anxieties, uncertainties, burdens, that we just really have no clue how to fully fix. And, and in it, we just kind of wonder, I mean, to who do I turn in this? I mean, is there someone who can come and straighten things out to just bring something of a new creation, a new hope in my life? And one time, somebody asked, a theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul, the question, what's the greatest spiritual need of people in the world today? Really good question, right? Sproul's response was, their greatest spiritual need is to understand the true identity of God. 
because a lot of people reject faith, or they think they reject faith, when they really don't understand the nature of the God they think they're rejecting. And then there was a follow-up question for Sproul. Okay, so what's the greatest spiritual need of people in the church, of believers today? You know what Sproul said? Their greatest spiritual need is to understand the true identity of God. Because if we believers truly understand who God is, who Christ is, I mean, what's in his heart, how competent he is, what his character is like, it would transform our lives. It, it would transform my priorities, what I say, how I worry, how I pray, how I live. Because here's the wonderful news. Jesus Christ says to you today, not come to my religion. He doesn't say come to my philosophy or, or come to my laws or come to my life strategies or even come to my anti-anxiety measures. Jesus is saying to you right today, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, man, I, I want you to experience soul refreshment in me. So I want to give you an opportunity to respond to his invitation today. And just I want to invite you to come forward and pray. Pour out to God what's on your heart. And it might be you'll be coming forward because you, you want to come to him with maybe it's some thanksgiving or praise that's just welling up within your heart. Maybe it's a prayer matter you want to bring to him. Maybe it's a health concern, or maybe, maybe it's a source of anxiety or worry or stress in your life. Or maybe you want to come to lift to him somebody you love, somebody you're concerned for. Or maybe you're longing for wisdom in some area of your life. Or for you, it might be today you want to come to Jesus in faith. You, you want to pray to him. Okay, Jesus, I submit my life to you. So... I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a closing song of praise to our king. And as we do, I'll invite you to come. We'll have pastors, elders, care team members up here. They can pray with you. If you want to pray on your own, that is absolutely fine. There's a front row open. You can sit there and lift to God whatever you wish. So let me pray, and I'll invite you to come. So, Father, we do come to you again thanking you for your faithfulness. And I pray, Father, that by a work of your spirit, you would cause those words of Jesus expressed long ago, but which he still expresses today, come to me. I, I pray you would cause those to dwell within our hearts, that you would draw us to him, Father. You know the anxieties, the worries, the burdens we face, the fears, stresses. So even as we move into the series, I, I pray you would first lead us to him and we sing of his grace the wonder of our savior who is our king who is our friend we sing to him in praise even as we come in jesus name and again all god's people say amen so we stand